Good morning, church family. My name is Sue Woodman, and I will be reading 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and three of his sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth and fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bashan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bashan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. The king is dead. Long live the king. That traditional proclamation following the death of the former king and the ascension of a new monarch occurs even to this day in various countries, including Great Britain. The phrase was supposedly first used at the coronation of Charles the seventh of France in 1422 upon the death of his father, Charles VI. The phrase was intended to have a legal purpose to make sure that the transfer of sovereignty could occur instantaneously upon the moment of death of the previous monarch. The king is dead. Long live the king. While Israel didn't have such a saying, they definitely understood moving from one king to another. And as we end our time in 1 Samuel, we find the death of the king. And we're aware that another king is to succeed, that God had personally chosen. In fact, that's what half of our sermons have covered in these few months because Saul didn't like it. We've seen a king who is selfish, self-protective, and self-interested, willing to kill anyone and do anything to retain his power. God was going to make sure that that didn't happen. God is the one who provides the proper king. Well, we'll see that as we close out 1 Samuel today. I, I want to note to you that we have been spending time in the Old Testament from the beginning of 2022. So well over a year, we have been going through topic or book 
in the Old Testament. And after Easter, so after Holy Week, we are going to switch and move to the book of James. We constantly like to go between Old and New Testament to hear from God's Word. And after well over a year in the Old Testament, we're going to take a break from Samuel and we're going to go to the well-known letter of James. And we'll start that the week after Easter. But let's pray and ask the Lord to minister to us as we close out our time in 1 Samuel. Father, thank you that you are such a good God that you have given us your holy word. Book after book, including 1 Samuel, which teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, and trains us in righteousness. So we can become the men and the women, the disciples, sons and daughters of the king in holy worship and service. Father, open our hearts today so that we can hear what you want to say. For some of us, Father, rebuke us, challenge us. For others, Father, encourage us, comfort us. However, we need your ministry from your word and by your spirit. Father, we ask for that today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I were going to summarize this chapter, as it ends the book of 1 Samuel, I'd say what I say to you in that first point this morning, death and destruction are everywhere at the end of Saul's reign, and yet God is still God. Saul lived in fear and self-protection from the moment he was selected as king until the day he died. If you remember way back when, when Saul was selected, he literally was hiding in baggage, He was never the right person. God himself had said that. This is not the right king for you. But God's people hear that as a mirror. See that as a mirror to look into and not just as a finger to point. God's people wanted a king like the other nations. And they got one. Saul's behavior was so sinful that God spoke through an apparition, a vision of the late prophet Samuel to Saul in a medium's tent in Endor, just a couple chapters back, with these words of doom. This is from 1 Samuel 28. If you remember that, Saul literally, even though he had obeyed God to prohibit necromancers and mediums and spiritists, he went to one to do anything to try to garner control of his situation. And so God, in some kind of vision, raised up Samuel from the dead and spoke These prophetic words of judgment, here's what he said. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you, Saul, into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, hear this statement from the grave. And tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons will be with me. Well, guess what day tomorrow is? It's 1 Samuel 31. And in 1 Samuel 31 we see in graphic detail how God made good on his word. Look at me if you have your text open, 1 Samuel 31. The Philistines fought against Israel, verse 1 says, and the Israelites fled before them. They were just outmatched. God had said this in 1 Samuel 28, 19, and it was proven true. And many of the Israelites fell dead. They weren't done. Verse 2, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And at the end of verse 2, it says, all three of his sons were killed. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the archers overtook him. And it says they, they wounded him critically. 
Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through. Or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me, which is not untrue. In the ancient world, you would want the king to be captured alive so as to humiliate him, him because he representatively, when he was humiliated, you were humiliating his nation and his people. Saul knew full well that they were going to have their way with him. So he asked his armor bearer to do it for him. Kill me, he said. But his armor bearer, there we are in the verse 5, middle of verse 5, but his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. Maybe he, like David, feared touching the Lord's anointed. So Saul, verse 5 says, took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. Then verse 6, and here is this statement the narrator is giving you so that you remember 1 Samuel 28. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. Remember 1 Samuel 28, 19? And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. God wasn't joking. He was judging. When the Israelites along the valley and across the Jordan saw, this is verse 7, saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they knew it was over. And the text just says they abandoned their towns and they fled. There was no army left. There was no king to lead and rule. So the Philistines came and occupied them. And just imagine ancient world, plunder, etc. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, PZ-13. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Now, very common practice. Very common practice was to display graphically as a sign, as a declaration of victory, such a thing. I remember when we first went to Scotland and we visited the William Wallace Monument, I was intrigued by the history of this William Wallace, who was way taller than that actor in the movie, Mel Gibson. So I read some biographies our first month there about William Wallace and learned about his battles with the English and how he, even in, in, in the average age of that day, the average height of a grown adult male in Scotland, however many hundred years ago, was about five feet tall. So if you're like 5'2", you're the center, man. You're the center. Well, he's tall. He's 5'2". William Wallace, based upon his sword size, was about six foot four. So the reason he was so mighty in victory is because in the ancient world, in Scotland, you had this thing called a claymore, which isn't like the French where you have this tiny little sword. It was like a battering ram of a sword, and the sword had to be equivalent to your height and size for you to use it correctly. So the swords of the average five-foot soldier couldn't even come close before the sword of William Wallace reached its target. But when the English finally defeated William Wallace, they did exactly what we see here. They cut off and apart his body parts 
and sent it all around England and Scotland to declare your rebel leader is defeated, hanging his head on London Bridge to declare to all of the citizens that Scotland has lost, represented by Wallace. Notice something interesting in the text as well, and this fits the ancient world. They didn't just take off his head or strip him of his armor. Again, king's armor, decorative things to display. But they said, look at the end of verse 9. They sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news. That's an interesting note, because that statement is exactly what the Romans eventually would do. And they would call that in Greek, euangelion. To proclaim the good news of military victory. That's where we get our word gospel from. So what Christians did is they took this same practice that the Romans would do when they were victorious in battle, and they said, actually, with Jesus, we can pronounce the good news to you. So when you and I think about sharing the good news, that's exactly what the ancient world would do in military victory. But rather than sharing it about our God and the victory of our God through Jesus Christ, look at what these pagan Philistines are doing. They would proclaim the good news in the temple of their idols and among their people because they were convinced clearly our God is better than his God. Otherwise we would have lost. The God of Israel is weak. He's nothing. We won. We cut off the head of their king. Our king lives. So hang the decor in the temple. That's what verse 10 says. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Saul is judged in a brutal way that actually reflects poorly on Israel and on Israel's God. Now notice how this story ends, verse 11 and to the end. This, the people of Jabesh Gilead, which we, we don't know a lot, but we understand at one point Saul was favorable to this village. He was merciful to them. So when they heard that the, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men, they gathered together. Who wants to go get the king's body? And these brave men obviously stood up, so much so that the text says, valiant men marched through the night. They weren't going to wait till the next day. They went through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. So even though Saul was judged and humiliated, the Lord gave him an honorable burial in the end. First Chronicles gives commentary, all that we need. I've read this to you before, but I'll say it again here because this is what First Chronicles 10 is talking about. I'm quoting the Bible. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. It didn't say Saul died because he, stood, he, he, he impaled himself with his own sword. It didn't say Saul died because he was critically wounded and he knew it was over anyway. Why did he die? Because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. 
and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Now when we read this chapter, 1 Samuel 31, in the larger story of the Bible, the details of Scripture direct us to see God's larger provisions and larger purposes. Because it might be tempting to think, oh, God, this, this isn't good. Your name is being blasphemed in the temples of foreign gods, uh, rocks and wood figurines that are part of your creation, yet you're the creator. And you let our king be humiliated. Well, if that was the case, and I want to remind you of what actually at the beginning of 1 Samuel we learned. Remember the story of Hannah? She was misunderstood by her inconsiderate husband. She was heckled and treated poorly by one of his other wives who was as fertile as could be and she had no child to speak of. And it groaned. She groaned over this. And she, she went to speak to the priest and the priest misunderstood her as well and was inconsiderate. But the Lord opened Hannah's womb and gave her the man we now know as the prophet Samuel. And at the end of that scene, Hannah makes a prayer that I put in your notes for you that I want you to see. Listen to how this prayer isn't just a praise of God because she received something, but actually serves as a trailer for the rest of the story of 1 Samuel and even the rest of the biblical story. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 2 there in your notes. There is no one holy like the Lord, set apart. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly. You can imagine this being stated right to the Philistines. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Verses 4 and 5 talk about his might and his provisions, but go down to verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. That's exactly what he did by the end of the book. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Get this, why? How, how is this true? For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world he will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's almost like seeing that now we could have seen exactly what Saul was about to face. Look at the end of verse 9. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken the Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And Saul was not his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Horn is a symbol of power and authority. Brothers and sisters, the text is wanting us to think of what was foretold. Not just a couple chapters earlier about the death of Saul, the king. 
but was foretold at the beginning of the book that we were given a context from the prayer of this sweet saint, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, about who God really is and how God really works. And read in that context, what do you do with 1 Samuel 31? You have to say the king is dead and immediately, instantaneously, you have to say, long live the king. Because the Lord is the one who puts down and the Lord is the one who raises up. The same God who is faithful to his people in the old covenant is faithful to his people in the new covenant. And that final phrase of Hannah's prayer, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That final phrase of Hannah's prayer points us to Jesus. I want to end with that this morning, that second point. And this is my summary. And this is in many ways looking at all of 1 Samuel 31, uh, all of 1 Samuel. The life and death of Saul makes a glaring point. Jesus has always, Jesus was always the one assigned to be God's king. If 1 Samuel has taught us anything, it, it is that we dare not put our hope in anyone other than God's king. That's the title of this series, God's King. But it wasn't ever meant to be Saul. Remember the words of the Lord when Israel wanted a king like every other nation, 1 Samuel 8? Israel comes to Samuel and says, we want a king like the other nations. Make him big and strong and tall. A good warrior. Handsome, good, winsome. We want a president or Prime minister like the rest of the nations. This is what 1 Samuel 8 says. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And here's what the Lord says to Samuel. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. Go ahead, listen to it. And then he says this amazing statement in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. He says, it is not you, Samuel, they have rejected, they have rejected me as their king. Like God knew full well that they were rejecting him as king. And then God adds this commentary. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. This was par for the course. Now listen to them. Samuel, give them what they want. They want an earthly king and not me as their king? All right. You get it. Then he says this, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And I'm not going to read the rest of 1 Samuel 8, but what 1 Samuel 8 does is it goes through and it shows you, here's what your earthly king will do for you. And it's about selfishness and greed and power. And by the end of 1 Samuel, we have tasted that. God let an entire book teach us what it looks like when we don't trust in God as king. Chapter after chapter of literally a king, his last years of his life, giving up regular rulership, giving up his own family, throwing a spear at his own son, trying to betray, his, even murder his own children to hunt down a man running around with thousands of soldiers to end him because he lived with fear. Not with faith. 
And in the larger context of Scripture, we are meant to see that God's king is not just this David, son of Jesse, but that ultimately that God's king would come from the line of David and would be Jesus. And I give you in your notes a little comparison between King Saul and King Jesus. And I think it's telling. Look at the comparison with me. Saul, in time of crisis, turns to his armor bearer. Jesus, in times of crisis, turns to his father. Saul seeks to escape the path of suffering. Jesus was willing to suffer as assigned by the Father. That potent prayer of Jesus, Father, take this cup from me. But if it is your will. When he was, when he was submitting himself to suffering, please understand, it wasn't because of his own faults and failures. It's because of our faults and failures. This is a point in comparison, I think. Saul took his life to avoid shame. Jesus gave his life to receive shame. Hebrews talks about that with joy he endured the shame of the cross. Why with joy? Saul's cowering, wanting to get impaled by his own sword before he is exposed. Jesus fully gave his body to be beaten and ashamed because he loved you. The hanging of Saul's body was his humiliation. The hanging of Jesus' body was his exaltation. The Gospel of John literally describes it that way, that, that the raising of Jesus on the cross, which, again, this is totally strange. In the ancient world, that was embarrassment. That was shame. But John calls it his exaltation, his moment of glory. Seriously? On a cross with criminals? Is his glory? Yes. It's a reversal of the values of this world, just as accepting Jesus as king is a reversal of the values of this world. Saul's death was good news to God's enemies. Jesus' death was good news to God's people. That's literally, as I said earlier, where the word gospel, euangelion, good news, comes from. Saul's death finally was the result of God's judgment, but Jesus' death was the result of God's redemption. Saul was never God's king. He told us that all the way back in 1 Samuel 8, and he gave us 20 plus chapters to prove the point. God's chosen king was reserved for the one called the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Lord means king. The Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, like Israel, we are tempted to trust in or seek after a king of our own choosing. This whole book is teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us to see that like our forefathers and mothers, from the time of the Exodus until 1 Samuel, what are we tempted to do? What are we as modern Americans tempted to do? Trust in our political candidate and our political party and the king of our day. We are tempted to trust in a king of our own choosing or a king that fits our world. We are to learn from the example of our spiritual descendants. Let us not reject God as our king. I want to 
end our sermon today by song. I told my, I was talking to my wife saying I was going to do this and that I was going to actually lead us in this song together. And my, one of my kids walks in and says, Dad, don't do it. <laughs> like, have you heard yourself sing? I'm, I know I got it. It's not great. Is Greg gone? Like Nate Noble, Char, what's going on, Dad? Let's just, just be quiet and eat your breakfast. I wanted to end in song because I wanted this song to just flow out of the sermon. I didn't want it to be a break. I want it to be a response. Right? It's just out of the sermon, we just end in song, as God's people have done for a long time. They just sing in response. Because you hear God's word, you got to respond to it. And we respond by living differently, but you just in that moment need to say, praise be to God that his death was our redemption. His death, the king served his people rather than a king that serves himself. We have such a beautiful king. And I told my, kid, my, my kids the story of when I was a camp counselor and, and uh, we, our cabin was next to this one high school cabin for a couple years in a row and there was this girl in this uh, group that was, would come to the, when I served at this summer camp in Michigan for four summers, my college years, and she may have had the worst voice I've ever heard. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, it just, it just didn't work. And she sang as loud as she could. Like full blast, we're praising Jesus, baby. And the first day I'm like, oh my goodness, just mouth it. <laughs> or something. I mean, I did. Like it's wrong, poor thoughts. And then I felt this rebuke from the Lord and I heard, I kind of sensed this. She was made to sing praises to our God. And it's in his providence that her voice is not like the beautiful singers that are professionalized on the radio or on Spotify or the voices that will probably lead worship in churches like ours that may be not professional, but are gifted and lead our people. God gave her vocal cords and a mind and lungs to sing his praises and commands her to do so. And then I would watch and I would see this 15-year-old girl literally worshiping her king. And the more I sat or stood as we were singing near her, the more I didn't hear her voice and I just heard her words. And I remember myself being like, I don't want to lead a song. And I'm kind of like, actually, for a guy that doesn't have a great voice, it's good to let yourself lead singing. To sing with our children, even if your kids ask you not to. And to not be afraid to say, my vocal cords and my lungs and my mind to say the words have been commanded by the king to be sung in praise to him. And I just wanted to have a song that's an, actually an Advent song. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, writ, written 279 years ago by a guy named Charles Wesley. Think of how many Christian brothers and sisters in the English-speaking world have sung these words. And what's beautiful about this song is like the good songs that we just keep singing, they line themselves up with the plot of Scripture so beautifully that you're just singing the promise of God's Word. And I put the lyrics in your notes. I want to read them to you before we sing them. Come thou long expected Jesus. Think of, think of the story of 1 Samuel. Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. 
Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Every person made needs the kingship of Jesus. Every nation with all its prime ministers and presidents and kings and queens needs King Jesus. That's what they're longing for. Look at where it ends. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That's beautiful. So, help me. Join me in ending our sermon with a congregational response that sings this song to our king, God's king. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we sing that song to your king. We sing that song to King Jesus. And I pray that you would use your word to teach, rebuke, correct, and train us to trust in your king and to pursue your kingdom as we live as aliens and strangers and citizens of another country, one whose foundation is built by God. Thank you, Father, that King Saul is not our king, and long live King Jesus. Pray that our church and your church would let him rule in our hearts alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.